there. Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is newly announced NWSL Commissioner Jessica Berman. Before we get going, you can sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style stories and on-site coverage of every U.S. Men's National Team World Cup qualifier, including this week at Mexico. That's grantwall.com. Free seven-day trials are now available. The best way to support me and my work is by taking out a paid subscription. In segment one, Chris and I will break down the soccer news. We'll have my interview with Jessica Berman in segment two, but... Let's bring in Witty. How are you, my friend? Doing all right, sir. I'm. Uh, it's funny because uh, we joked when we met up in Nashville for uh, the USA Canada game that it was us meeting for the first time after potting together for like a year and a half. Well, we're about to spend like an entire week together in Mexico City and Orlando. So, uh, looking forward to the international window. I'm very excited about this. That you'll be in Mexico City uh, for this sort of bucket list game and. Um, that's going to be on Thursday night. I already wrote a column why everyone should try and attend this game. It's not going to be a full stadium, right? Uh, because of COVID, because of suspensions of the Mexican Federation. I don't know if that's connected to it, but like, um, in, in that said, it's still going to be a huge deal. There's going to be a ton of us fans there. I'm looking forward to the American outlaws night before party on Wednesday night in Mexico city, and just being around the whole thing. But uh, we're actually going to have the whole gang, you, me, and Landon Donovan together for the first time in person for our Landon Wall and Witty podcast, breaking down instant reaction after the game on Thursday night. So that's going to be awesome. But we haven't done this in a little while. You've had a well-deserved little time off, very little time off. But um, you were in Austin. You were uh, celebrating with your mom uh, out in Napa Valley. And you made very big news uh, as an announcer for Univision, as you typically do, the English SAP broadcast of the National Univision game. This was uh, LA Galaxy Orlando. And I just want to say, man, you've been called a legend more in the last 48 hours (laughs) like than I've ever been called in my life. So congratulations. Well... Uh, it, it has not always felt like uh, legendary behavior in the last 48 hours. I, I've questioned myself and my career decisions that have led me to this point. Um, I should first start, because uh, the audience might not know what we're talking about. Recently on the Levitard show, I actually went back and, and, and tracked it down like two months ago. Um, we were talking about how Dan uh, was the only one who for a while on ESPN was saying the word nipples. And, uh, and so... Um, it led to a conversation where I had railed at the fact that announcers uh, don't like they always go, oh, it hit him in the downstairs region or it hit him where the sun don't shine or all these euphemisms instead of just coming out and saying it. And so I said that if I ever called the game where someone got hit downstairs that I would use the anatomically correct term. And that I did. And I did not realize that doing this would set off set off a five alarm Twitter fire. But it did. And uh, I've been stewing in the reactions for the 36 hours since. Why don't you play the clip? Look at that low service. I say stay down. You would too, Chris. Yeah. You hit him in the penis. Why, you know what? A, We're laughing like children. Why is this I'm so funny? I'm a seven-year-old boy. I'm a seven-year-old boy right now, Chris. 
I don't understand why this has been so funny to so many people. I, I, I genuinely don't understand why. I mean, we all turn into seven-year-olds around this word. It's anatomically correct. Now, here's the, the question. Is it anatomically correct? Because it is. It mm. is. But I had a discussion because I was relaying this story to uh, my wife, Dr. Celine Gowder, tonight over dinner. And I played the clip for her. And she, her first reaction was, thumbs up, Chris. You know, good job. Um, way, way to like just, you know, call it like it is. But then she thought about it a little more and said, you know, in the future in these circumstances, you might want to use the term scrotum or testicles. Mm. And, you know, look, you're, you're the legend, so you decide what you want to do. But from a doctor's perspective who respects your work and respects what you said over the weekend... I don't know. Just consider it. Yeah. It, so is is the is the argument that anatomically the source of the pain is more yes. and and also uh, it's more likely to be hit there in the gonads than in the penis. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That, that that makes sense as an argument. I will take it under consideration. The doc has spoken. Uh, first off, I'm very appreciative of the fact that she's supportive of my work because I'm obviously very supportive <laughs> of hers. Um, but also. Um, yeah, I, I, it's just, it's fascinating to me, like, how it has created this reaction amongst people. Um, I actually got a couple of people who were, like, our parents are like, thank you, because I'm trying to destigmatize this word around my yeah. children. And, you know, I think the fact that people say it in public could help. U ultimately, uh, my only concern off the back of it has been, has this ruined any <laughs> career prospects for me? I certainly hope not. Uh, to any prospective hirers that listen to football with Grant Wall, I am not a shock jock broadcaster. I was merely trying to say something anatomically correct. Uh, but, I don't know, it seems to have gotten a rise out of people, and I, I have found that amusing, uh, oh if, if perhaps uh, slightly uh, overkill. It's great. It's great. I, I, I played it multiple times yesterday and couldn't stop laughing. You know what's funny is uh, my friend Kevin Egan, who works on the Atlanta United broadcast, texted me about it, saying that it was funny or whatever. And I said to him, I thought that his broadcast moment was a million times funnier. Uh, he was on a pregame set with Jillian Sakovitz and Maurice Du uh, yes. for Atlanta United. And yes. Tiffany Haddish, the actress, came over and basically started oogling Maurice Du on live television. And I thought that was a hundred times funnier than what I said. And yet, uh, I, I guess more people... Uh, for some reason, found this funny. I will try not to be a seven-year-old boy for the rest of the podcast, <laughs> but I can't guarantee it. Um, other other good moments of the weekend, El Clasico, <laughs> uh, where no commentator, as far as I know, said anything like that, but mm. Real Madrid nil, Barcelona four, and a real significant statement game for FC Barcelona. And this is not going to cause Barcelona to win the league. You know, Real Madrid's going to almost certainly win the league. And yet, it's a, it's a big moment for Xavi as a coach to show that he can coach at the highest levels. And he's sort of ratifying what he's been doing over the last couple of months with his team. Uh, it's a big moment for FC Barcelona uh, to win El Clasico for the first time since 2019, to do it without Lionel Messi, to show that... There's reason for real hope at Barcelona. And I happen to be at El Chiringuito, of all places, the <laughs> night that Ronald Koeman got fired. 
And the night that El Chiringuito, of all places, reported that Xavi was the likely replacement, and my initial reaction at the time was like, I don't know if this is a, the right time for Xavi to make this decision because Barcelona is a tire fire at that point. And I thought it could be a total disaster and it hasn't been. And Barcelona has made additions in January, like Ferran Torres, like Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, like Adama Traore, who didn't play today, but like still ha has had an impact. And Aubameyang has been a stud. Two more goals today in this game. Um, Pedri is just awesome. And suddenly you're feeling very positive about where Barcelona is going. And they're not in the Champions League. They're not really in contention in La Liga. And yet, I think Barcelona fans will look back on this time, potentially, and feel very proud. Right, it's because it looks so dire. And if you had asked me, you know, when Xavi was appointed, I would have said this is a years-long process to get Barcelona back to where they should be. And I still sort of think that it is, just because you mentioned some of those, some of those names. I, I just don't think of those guys, other than Ferran Torres, as having the ceiling to get to you know peak Barcelona competing for Champions League titles. But in La Liga, they've been better than Real Madrid since Xavi took over, and today's result confirmed that. And Real Madrid... Look good in Champions League. Coming from behind to beat PSG, they've been the most consistent team in the league. They will still, in all likelihood, win the title. But to, over a length of time, signal that you can compete with Real Madrid is really important for Barcelona. Do it at the, One of the things you didn't mention was they did it at the Bernabeu. Yeah. Beat them 4-0 and smashed them. And honestly, should have been more. You look at the misses that they had in this game. Ferran Torres could have easily had a hat-trick in this one. Comes out of halftime, 15 seconds in, should absolutely have been scoring one-on-one -on -one beyond Thibaut Courtois, who actually thought still had a pretty decent game despite conceding four goals. So you're right. This is absolutely about Barcelona signaling that they are on their way back that there'll be a Champions League club next year in all likelihood, and you can start to see the steps taking place. But uh, I, I agree with you in that it just seemed like another ill-fated player legend coming back to manage their old club, and maybe he didn't have the experience. And Xavi has turned out to completely know what the club needed in this moment, has them playing really good soccer. The quality of the stuff that they were playing today was fantastic. Yeah. And so I, I think it's absolutely a signal that they're heading in the right direction. It totally is. My only question, though, is like, I know Kareem Benzema didn't play today, but why did Real Madrid completely fall apart and really have no chance in this game from the start? I thought after halftime they might come out and get back in the game like a Jesse Marsh coach team would. And we'll get to that later. And they didn't. And Barcelona put two more on the board very quickly early in the second half. And is this just a one-off, truly bad day for Real Madrid, which was getting whistled by their own fans? Or is this something to be really concerned about? For me, it, it would be something to be concerned about just because I think whenever Real Madrid turn in performances like this, you're reminded that the next era of players is not completely ready. Right when you know Kroos, Modric, and Casemiro, your midfield for several years, and look, Modric is 36 and still looks incredible. So I'm not writing him off anytime soon. But at some point, that's not going to come to fruition. But the replacement for Benzema, the succession plan, was meant to be Luka Jovic. It didn't work out. Um, Vinicius has taken on the mantle on the wing. He's become a really good player. Um, but 
I just don't think you have enough of those that are ready-made right now. Eduardo Camavinga, I think, will eventually get there in midfield. Um, the center backs that were meant to replace Ramos and Pepe have always been kind of shaky. They let Varane go to Manchester United. They certainly have it, the answer in goal. There's no question about it. I think Courtois is fantastic. But I just don't think that when you see Real Madrid play like this, it shows how they have attempted to succession plan, but it hasn't always worked. And that these guys are not necessarily ready for the big occasion every single time. They need the big players that they leaned on to win Champions League eight, six, seven, eight years ago to continue to perform at a high level. And at a certain point, they're just not. Yeah, and if you're Chelsea, which has drawn Real Madrid in the Champions League uh, next stage here in the quarterfinals, I, I think you have to be watching this game very closely. And obviously, if you're Real Madrid, you eliminated Real Madrid last year. Uh, from Champions League, but Barcelona certainly showed a way to attack Real Madrid today that was um, kind of weirdly dominant, uh, I thought, and uh, just a just a huge, huge performance. And Xavi's a guy. There's a really good story by uh, our old friend John Muller at uh, the Athletic about how Xavi has used this team and how he's working with his midfielders there and asking them to do things that weren't just exactly what Xavi did himself as a player. And this Barcelona team plays differently in the midfield than Xavi's teams did. And I thought it was a really good article, and we saw a lot of that today as well. So John Muller continues to keep killing it. Good for him. Um, And, you know, like, I I still think La Liga is decided, but but still – just a, like an in, El Clasico is always going to be a huge game. This was a very big game, and, and Barcelona came up huge to sort of turn the tides in what has been a very one-sided rivalry. I want to jump to the U.S. men's national team because that is a big story, obviously, uh, starting right now, basically. And huge World Cup qualifiers coming up. The U.S. wants to clinch a berth at... Uh, World Cup 2022. They've got Mexico on Thursday. Huge game at home against Panama. Following that, then at Costa Rica. And injuries really dominating the discussion right now. We already knew that Weston McKinney and Serginio Dest were going to be out. Matt Turner as well. Chris Richards as well. And on Sunday, Brendan Aronson, who is the only player who has played in all 11 World Cup qualifiers, did not start for Salzburg, a late scratch due to knee issues, and uh, a real concern. Nothing definitive yet announced from U.S. soccer, whether he'll be there or not, but if he isn't, that's one more issue to deal with. Yeah, Stu Holden did tweet today that that Brendan Aronson will at least come to camp, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to be healthy for the Mexico game. So that would be a huge concern um, if he can't go. And, and I think this is probably something that we'll discuss here. But I guess I, I set the Mexico game as the target. But is the target here the Panama game? And that, you know, whatever you get at Azteca is a bonus. Um, but is is the Panama game, and to a lesser extent the Costa Rica game, the more important games in the window? Because if the U.S. are not at full strength, then they will not have probably the quality of depth that they would like to have to go into using 18 guys or 16 guys to start 
the two games, you want to pick your best side. It is, is at this point the Mexico game, try and get to the hour mark at nil-nil and see what you can get from there by using rotation players. I saw Matt Doyle tweeting about this today that maybe that should be the tactic. Um, I, I said on the podcast when Weston McKinney got hurt, you field your best players and you keep fielding your best players against Mexico um, until you can't. But at this point, do you have to look at it as the three-game window that it is and and start to recognize that you might not have Aronson, um, you might not start Timothy Wea in this game, you might not start what you obviously you won't have Weston McKenney to start, you might you won't have Matt Turner, you'll probably have Zach Steffen who started today in the FA Cup, which is a good sign. But you don't have your full allotment of players, and does that change the way that you approach the window? I guess it all matters really what Greg Berhalter thinks, yeah, more than what we think, and so. Will the U.S. start its best possible 11 in Mexico, knowing that three days later they have a much more important game at home against Panama? And Greg Berhalter has been pretty, as I expected, straightforward about what he said, which is we're going to try to win the game in Mexico and in Orlando. Okay, but that is just words, and so we'll see who he chooses to actually put on the field in Mexico. And I actually am leaning toward this idea of what you're talking about, which is see where you are after 60 minutes, put on a, out a lineup that can get you to that point and then bring on your big guns if you need to in Mexico, because uh, the three points against Panama, you've got to get, you just absolutely have to get that at home. If you can do that, Panama cannot catch you no matter what else happens in any other game. And by that point, we may also have an idea of whether Costa Rica, Costa Rica needs to get nine points in this window in three games to be able to catch the U.S., unless there's some crazy goal difference situation, which I don't expect to happen. And so they have to play Canada in Costa Rica in their first game. Canada just needs one point to clinch a berth at the World Cup, so they're highly motivated. So I, I, ex I think it's certainly possible that Costa Rica drops points against Canada. And if that's the case... They can't catch the U.S. So getting three against Panama is absolutely huge. And if you can get three points against Can or Panama in the second game, you also at least guarantee that at the very worst, you'll go to the playoff if you're the U.S., the Intercontinental Playoff in June in Qatar. Nobody wants to do that, but still, you're at least, get, you know, you're, you're at least staying alive. It's not like a situation like four years ago, five years ago, I guess, where the U.S. was totally eliminated that night in Trinidad. So um, you got to figure things out, and your personnel makes a huge impact on who you're going to even be able to use. And right now, like, full strength, the U.S. certainly isn't going to be this week. And I, I find interesting that, you know, maybe there is this idea of get to nil-nil after 60 minutes. I, I don't know, and this might be concerning heading towards a World Cup if you get there, um, is... Do you even have the personnel to do that? Like, does Greg Berhalter, given the way that he's coached the team to be more proactive, when the U.S. has tried to sit back, when, I mean, they, they I, I can really only think of against Panama when, you know, they weren't exactly, you know, dominating the ball. And Panama, I thought, were able to rip them open quite a bit. That's really the only game that I can think of where it was fairly clear that the home team wanted to, because even Canada sat back against the U.S., um, Right. I, I, I kind of wonder if the U.S. have that in their locker. Like, you'd certainly want to start like Zimmer, like Walker Zimmerman and Miles Robinson at the back. But, you know, do you have it in you to play ugly? 
And I feel like that might be something that's worth trying uh, to, to pull out of the golf bag here for the U.S. because I, I, I said this, and, and it's the reason why I thought the U.S. should approach this game against Mexico at full strength is because I really do think that Mexico were there for the taking. Like, you can have a go with them. And I know that they're right. going to be probably a bit more up for it than they've been in some of their other home qualifiers, and the crowd will be will have as many people as is allowed by the local government, and they'll be making a real noise because it's USA-Mexico. But um, I, you just haven't seen enough from Mexico. We're talking about players that are out of form for the U.S. or injured for the U.S. It's pretty well the same case for Mexico as well. Uh, there's more calls to bring Chicharito back because their center forward situation just hasn't really been that good uh, for Mexico during this qualifying campaign. They've got issues too, and so are they there for the taking? I just don't know if the U.S. really have it in them to kind of be that bunker encounter kind of team, or do they have to play on the front foot and then you try and play uh, your best quality players? Because if you're basically saying put you know hard workers like Paul Ariola and uh, Kellen Acosta out there, like you know, can you play that style uh, without your best quality players out there? Like, are we saying like don't play Pulisic? Uh, Gio Reyna started and played 90 today for Dortmund. Don't start Gio Reyna and then see if they can maybe come off the bench and, and bring some quality. Do you put on a hard worker up top? Uh, you know, with that with with that thought in mind, like I, I just don't know what the version of the U.S. is that isn't trying to play to win and keep the ball and be proactive and disorganize the opponent with positional play and all the things that Greg Berhalter has been talking about for three years in charge of the national team. You brought up a lot of stuff, and I, I'm curious to see what Pulisic's role is going to be. Um, I think he needs to have a big game, but not want to try and do everything himself as he often does uh, with the U.S. Gio Reyna starts for Dortmund. Great news to some extent uh, on, and he didn't get hurt, so that's also great news. Um, but do you start him on Thursday? Do you use him in a reserve role? Tim Weah hasn't started many games recently. How 90 minutes fit is he? So there's a lot going on there. No Weston McKenney, Kellen Acosta, I expect to be in that position. Um, and it's asking a lot, but it's it's always big for Mexico USA. And so I, I am very much looking forward to this game. Um, we'll have a lot more to talk about that moving forward, obviously, as we'll be there. But uh, I want to talk about another American, Jesse Marsh, who has only been in charge for four games for Leeds United, lost his first two games. And they're in a, you know, they've been in a relegation battle. That's what led Marcelo Bielsa to being fired. And in two straight games now, Jesse Marsh's Leeds United has had stoppage time winners that are absolutely incredible. So against Norwich at home, they gave up a late goal, late equalizer, and it looked really bad there. That was going to be a bad result if they tied it home to Norwich. And then they get a winner. In the scenes, when you watch them, are amazing at home. And then... Even more incredible, I would say, on Friday at Wolves, down 2-0 at halftime. Bamford has re-injured himself and left the field. Huge downer there. And it looks like just a, a completely negative situation for Leeds United and Jesse Marsh. And then somehow in the second half, things turn around. Raul Jimenez gets a second yellow. A little dubious in my opinion. <laughs> and is sent off. And then Leeds launches this comeback and gets one back. 
gets a second back. And they're dominating the game at this point. And then in stoppage time, Ailing gets the winner through pure hustle. On the road, six points in their last two games. And now they're seven. Are they seven points clear of the relegation zone? Yes. Yeah. Seven points clear of Watford, uh, who right now represent the line. You're probably racing against Burnley just because they have the games in hand. But, I mean, huge to have that kind of distance heading into the international break. And, like, look, I mean... Huge credit to the players of, of Leeds. I realize this is not just a coach coming in and changing things, but give Jesse Marsh some credit as well because this is a pressure cooker situation, a lot of attention because it's the Premier League, and the way they've won these two games and the way that Jesse's dealt with like the media post-game. I watched the six-minute interview he did with Sky and, and Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher afterward, and he handled that so freaking well. And they, they clearly enjoy having him on for those types of interviews. And then, you know, even in the press conference afterward, when he sort of pokes some fun at the, the local media saying, like, you know, my players welcomed me 100% from the start, didn't question my accent like some of you did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and... and they're not definitely going to stay up at this point, but they're in a much better situation than they were before March came in. Yeah, I mean, just getting the two wins. Like when you're in when you're in the relegation zone, a couple wins can create a massive amount of difference, uh, which is what's happened here. I, I do find fascinating, like just the completely different shape of all of these games. I, I would actually say, if not for the second yellow. They were probably soundly beaten in two of them, um, which, you know, look, you're a team in a relegation dogfight, but it's kind of remarkable to say you were soundly beaten in a game in which you won. Um, but until that red card, uh, Leeds had created a couple of chances, but ultimately Wolves were the better team and were probably going to coast to victory. But that is a real testament to Jesse Marsh that they kept going and that, you know, a lot of teams go up a man and don't completely take advantage of the situation. And yet... Once you started to see the way that they were playing up a man, that the pressing style when you have one less number to account for, that is it's a lot easier to pull off. And when earlier in the game Wolves are playing through them, in this situation Wolves completely capitulated. So I think the fact that they were able to come back two stoppage time winners, even in the Norwich game, you know there was a late chance for Norwich to go and win it, which would have been absolutely devastating. And you saw uh, Leeds put out some cool video of the scenes uh, during the goal, after the win, and how completely insane that was. But yeah, I mean, the goal for Jesse Marsh, you know, he's talked about you know process over results and all this stuff. It's just staying up. And if you stay up with this team, uh, the fans will be behind you, and then he'll have a chance to build uh, for next season. But you're starting to see his, his, his ideas being implemented, but my God, can he use some luck with injuries? Even in that game, you don't have Rafinha from the start, uh, which which is a huge key. After the game, you mentioned that Sky interview. He talks about the health of like four players. They need a two-week wow. break during this international window to figure out uh, what their situation with health is. But um, look, it, it's, it's an incredible story, and I now like live and die with Leeds games. I had no idea that I would care this much about an American managing in the Premier League, but here we are. Um, it, it, it's been really fun to watch. I was literally on a plane watching this game, and thumbs up, by the way, to American Airlines and United, which now have good enough Wi-Fi on their planes that I can watch live streams now. So when Leeds got the winner, I'm like fist pumping and like making noise <laughs> in my full plane. And all these people are looking at me like, what are you doing, man? And I'm like trying to point like to the like 
it just didn't work. I was wearing earbuds. Right. They didn't uh, USA understand. Network. It's it's Leeds and Wolverhampton Wanderers. It's <laughs> soccer, the Premier League. There's an like like the number of layers you have to get through to explain. Like ah, it's sports. Don't worry about it. Um, so um, let's talk a little CCL, Concacaf Champions League. Uh, very up and down week for MLS. At one point, we were wondering if maybe four MLS teams would fill the final four semifinal spots for CONCACAF Champions League and finally guarantee that there would be an MLS winner in the Champions League era for the first time after so many years of domination by the Mexican teams. That didn't happen. And so uh, Montreal was only one down to Cruz Azul. Cruz Azul ends up advancing there, so that was one. And then the killer was New England Revolution up three goals and totally giving it away. And Pumas ends up advancing in that one on penalties. Uh, so two Mexican teams facing each other in the semifinal. And then Seattle had a three-goal lead. And I, I was like, oh, man, after the New England game, like dreading this one. Seattle holds on and, and, and beats Lyon, advances to the semifinal. New York City, the MLS champion, very dicely advances against Comunicaciones on the away goals rule, which still exists in CONCACAF, if not in UEFA. Um, and so it's going to be Seattle against New York City in one semifinal and the all-Mexican semifinal, Cruz Azul against Pumas in the other one. So we're guaranteeing an MLS versus Liga MX final, which is interesting. Um, and I, I, I guess my question for you would be, what's your takeaway from the week, and how are you feeling moving ahead? Yeah, so moving ahead, it's about, you know, we're guaranteed an all-MLS, all-Liga MX final, and that kind of almost... Um, makes the pressure a lot less in the semifinal round. I don't know if I'm going to be as invested just because like it's really only about MLS versus League MX, but Seattle kind of showed like how simple it was for New England to get through and New England kind of have a problem on in that I think right now they seem like a regular season team and not like a team that can win knockout games. And that is in some respects down to the same system that betrayed Bruce Arena in Trinidad. Where he's playing out of that four four two, where he's playing out of that four four two diamond, and you have that one holding midfield player, and you just saw massive gaps all over, and New England still had chances to score goals and win and just get an away goal. All they needed was an away goal, and they forced Pumas to score five, um, and they couldn't get the away goal, and. In some ways, it was like a U.S. men's national team bingo card of players that or uh, players and entities that U.S. fans have loved to hate over the course of the last few years: Josie Altidore, Omar Gonzalez, uh, Sebastian Legette, Bruce Arena, and it was just one of those things where it completely gave it away. It has nothing to do with the structural advantages of the calendar or the money spent or the right. depth that's different between the two teams. It was just a complete choke job by the New England Revolution. And they have some questions to answer. And maybe by the time the season comes to an end, they will have answered them. And they'll be a good team in this year's MLS Cup playoffs. But you can question the tactics. You can question um, the performances of, of, of the players on the day. And ultimately, the U.S. or the U.S., uh, New England just completely failed there. And honestly, I, like, I was fairly concerned with the performance that NYCFC put in as well. 
away from sure. home. Like conceding four to Comunicaciones, needing the away goals rule. I thought really over the course of the 180 minutes, Comunicaciones gave New York City a total run for their money. I'm not sure that I would feel great about them going into a final, um, or, or at least as good as I would probably feel about Seattle right now, given how they handled Leon over the two legs. So just warning signs. And it's still a lot of development and, and knowledge of how to play teams in CONCACAF because we just seem a bit short on it at the moment as, as far as MLS teams go. I would lean towards Seattle in the semifinal against New York City. I just think Seattle, at its best, is the best team in MLS. Um, huge, as you mentioned, just screw up by by New England. Really disappointing, uh, especially considering you're right. It involves a lot of guys who were part of that U.S. fiasco, and I realize it's not the same thing, but mm-hmm. uh, New England, by the way, not great over the weekend in the league, losing 3-1 to Charlotte uh, in Charlotte's first ever victory as a team. Uh, goalkeeping issues. Matt Turner's hurt, um, and I, I think they're going to have to get an upgrade there by the time yep. Turner leaves this summer because uh, some real issues. I, I think it's fairly safe to assume that New England is not going to be the team in the regular season that it was setting a record last season in MLS, and part of that has to do with personnel. You know, Turner hasn't been available, won't be. Cajun Buchanan's gone. And uh, he's not walking through that door, and they don't have replacements yet to to make people forget those guys. So uh, it's it's going to be a different season, I think. But uh, it, it, if we went back to when this tournament started, and you told me that we were guaranteed to see an MLS team in the final of CCL, I would have said okay. And whoever that team is, whether it's Seattle or New York City, uh, I think they've got a shot to win it. So. Uh, We'll see how that goes. We've noticed at the beginning of the season, as it should be, by the way, that the CCL teams are not doing as well in the league. They're not focusing on the league, nor nor should they. You know, Seattle tied 1-1 against Austin on uh, Sunday, and um, that's no huge skin off their back. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about Chelsea because it's been a little while since we had a a recorded conversation here because we've been doing different things. And several things have happened in the Chelsea story. And we're very close now to, I think, a new owner coming in. We'll have to wait and see when that announcement happens. Um, Chelsea on the field advanced in the FA Cup to the semifinals. They're going to face Real Madrid in the Champions League. They're in third in the Premier League. Um, Arsenal might be getting kind of close, which is an interesting aspect of that story. Um, and yet there's so much that's up in the air right now about Chelsea in terms of who's going to be running that club. What does it mean for the future of the club, how it's going to be run, all that stuff. Yeah. And, and for me, the, the, the part that's kind of most interesting is that Chelsea has basically been run at a loss to the tune of something yeah. like 1.3 billion uh, for the Abramovich era because Abramovich prioritized winning things over making money. And I'll be curious if, you know, for instance, Todd Bowley, who has led a bid, um, the businessman who owns, uh, at least in part, the Los Angeles Dodgers, or the Ricketts family, who have led a bid, um, who own the Chicago Cubs. John Henry does not run Liverpool at a loss. They make smart, strategic decisions in the transfer market to back their coach and they've done remarkable business. You know, they have Andrew Robertson and Trent Alexander-Arnold at fullback for like a combined $5 because they've done incredibly smart business there. They kind of bring in one attacker at it, but they don't 
splash the cash like Chelsea have done and are probably not going to, I would imagine, going forward. And so how much does just the the essence of Chelsea change? And and how much um, are they going to kind of give up by way of changing owner? How much is the club going to change? Are the fans going to kind of, in, in some ways, lose what their identity has been for the last 18 years of, you know, we... We win all transfer battles. We are the financial powerful in the like Chelsea fans carry themselves in a certain way because of who their owner was. And I wonder how much the essence of the team changes as a result of ownership change. Now, maybe, and I would sincerely doubt this given what's happening in geopolitics right now, but maybe the Saudis, uh, I saw that the head of their media company is interested. If they take over and they, you know, operate like Newcastle operating right now, then it's, I would presume, business as usual. Um, but if a more kind of sensible businessman takes them over, that completely changes what Chelsea is. And I'd be curious their capacity to hang on all the players that they have and how much it changes the club going forward. No, those are all great points. Really good discussion. I mean, I, I guess I would say it's really important to keep Thomas Tuchel mm. because there are other clubs, other big clubs, who would love to have Thomas Tuchel. And I think if Chelsea, whoever the new owner is coming in, I think their first order of business is talk to Thomas Tuchel, make sure he's in, and explain to him how you're going to be running this club in the long term. And it doesn't have to be a bad situation. It may be a different situation than it has been, but that's job one. And then I think, you know, making sure that some of the top players are still interested in staying. And that's a complicated one too, because I don't think Chelsea is going to be that bad off if, if Lukaku leaves to be honest. Mm -hmm. And I think most fans would say the same thing. So like, maybe you can get some money out of that. Um, but there's certain guys that you need to have and, and to be smart about how you move forward, to be smart, strategic, like Liverpool has been. And, and I think that's what they're going to have to be moving forward. Uh, you know, depending on who takes over, uh, I just don't see that the Saudis doing it. And if the, if the Saudis do it and they're approved, that tells me nothing's changed in terms yeah. of approval of owners, coming into the Premier League because any ownership group coming from Saudi Arabia, I don't care what they say, is directly tied to the Saudi Arabian government. And it would be remarkable for them to own, you know, one-tenth of the Premier League, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it, would, yeah. it would completely change kind of the ownership to the dynamics. But I, I have found fascinating, like in some ways, the stages of grief that Chelsea fans have gone through. Obviously, they don't matter uh, in, in the conflict between Ukraine and Russia. It's just not important in the grand scheme. But... They got, you know, Chelsea fans got so tied up in having Abramovich as their owner. And frankly, again, if you just want to separate the sport from the politics, Roman Abramovich is everything you'd want as a sports fan, right? From an owner, the, in, in the capacity to spend, in wanting to operate the club at a loss, in, you know, all the things that he's done, frankly, in building up their women's team and building up their reputation uh, within English football. Um, he's been everything that you'd want, but, you know, at what cost? And I think Chelsea fans right. have been bargaining with that for a while and have really kind of made themselves look like a fool at times with how they're, you know, chanting Abramovich's name during, uh, you know, a tribute to Ukraine when they played at Burnley and, and all these things because they have such fealty to this owner who has given them so much, but again, at what cost? So uh, I, I've, I've just found the whole situation fascinating and uh, the way in which the club changes as a result going forward will be certainly something that I'm watching. Yeah, and for what it's worth, Chelsea's PR apparatus has been a complete clown show over the last few weeks in the official statements they've released. These are the folks who confirmed that Roman Abramovich was 
negotiating peace in Ukraine, of all things, which obviously wasn't the case, hasn't been the case, and put out a statement ahead of the FA Cup game against Middlesbrough demanding like an empty stadium because at Middlesbrough because Chelsea couldn't sell tickets. Like, it's just so embarrassing. Gary Neville made a great point about this where he was saying that, like, it's so clear that people within football are in a bubble and they just don't realize, like, how their actions and their words play in the outside world because the people within the building who are running things are so far gone from the reality that most people live day to day that they think that it like those statements would be received well that th- them oh, they, that they get Chelsea fans to back them or whatever that it like that would play well when it was so obviously dead on arrival yeah I, absolutely ridiculous but uh, more to come i'm sure we'll have more news next week uh, but uh, I, I would advise everyone to come back. We're going to be talking about U.S. men's national team pretty exclusively over the next three games, over the next week and a half. Huge games and really looking forward to it and having you be on hand with me, Chris. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Jessica Berman. The NWSL just started its annual Challenge Cup over the weekend, and our guest now is Jessica Berman. She was recently named the next commissioner of the NWSL, where she will officially start work on April 20th. Berman spent the past two years as the deputy commissioner of the National Lacrosse League. She's been running it recently after a 13-year tenure in the NHL. Jessica, congratulations on the new job, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited about the NWSL. Lots to talk about here. You've been doing a ton of interviews, and it's been interesting to, to listen to those and, and hear what you're about a little bit. I mean, the first question I would have would just be a basic one. Why did you want the NWSL commissioner's job? I have always believed in the power of sport. I have, as uh, you can see, and maybe you've heard me talk about in some of my interviews, the Nelson Mandela quote that sport has the power to change the world. And I genuinely believe that the NWSL is the manifestation of the intersection of purpose and profit. And it is the thing that will hook the next generation. And so it really is the perfect property to create our proof of concept that we can do good and do well. We can be relevant and meaningful in the community and lean into our ability to influence communities and social impact while also being a business. And uh, I think that second piece is the thing that I'm really excited to be part of and bring to bear with with the history of women's sports being thought of perhaps as charity. And I think we know that the NWSL is not charity. It is a business and it is ready to thrive. I mean, we saw recently, I think this past week, Angel City, the new team out in Los Angeles, announced $35 million in sponsorships, which is pretty incredible. Do you know any more details about that in terms of like how, is that just this year or years beyond or just, you know, committed or, or, you know, and where does that sort of stack up in the bigger picture context wise? Yeah, I, I, being that I'm still five weeks from my start date, I, I don't have the details on it, but I do know, and I listened to Julie Ehrman and Alexis Ohanian talk about that in their event at South by Southwest and her announcement that they're at $35 million sponsorship. They really are the case study on this intersection of purpose and profit and this idea that 
they are actually selling sponsorship and tickets with the commitment to give back to community. And it is the thing that is driving interest from investors. And uh, I'm excited to really embrace that at the league level and also share best practices across the league. Because in my experience, the role of a league is not just to grow the national assets of the league, but also to be the aggregator and the amplifier of best practices that are happening at a local level. And clearly what they're doing from a business perspective is a best practice that we can help to facilitate the sharing across the other 11 markets. They've sold a lot of season tickets too out there for that new team. I'm really excited to see how that team looks on the field and and off the field, but really encouraging. Um, You know, it was very clear that the NWSL players were heavily involved in your hiring process. How would you describe your interactions with the players during that whole thing? Well, first of all, I would just uh, hats off to the players in the union for asking for a seat at the table. Hats off to the board for giving them that seat at the table. And I was really the beneficiary of that because I felt that it actually gave me the opportunity to have firsthand visibility and direct purview into whether and how we would be able to navigate this path forward. And as I've said multiple times, I would not want this role if I didn't feel that I could actually contribute and add value. My perspective coming out of my meetings with the players in the union was that I could add value and that these players were really ready to embrace the league moving forward, me as a leader. And I was confident coming out of those conversations that as importantly, that the players in the union really have a substantive contribution to make in our story of growth. And they have fantastic ideas. They ask great questions. They're super savvy and super smart. And just all comes back to the fact that, as I've always said, I'm a true believer in diversity. And if you're a true believer in diversity, then it's incumbent upon you to lean into those moments of uncomfortability where you're getting feedback and perspectives from people who either represent a different constituent, come from a different background, think differently, ask unique questions. Those moments might make you uncomfortable as a leader because they might seemingly take you in a different direction or bring you in a circuitous route to bringing a decision to conclusion or execution. But I think the world has learned and in 2022, I hope we're at a place where not everything is measured by how quickly you can bring something to action. Mm. It's more about the quality of the process and being able to leave space for people to contribute. And I genuinely believe that the players in the union have a role to play in offering their perspective. And again, it doesn't always mean that we'll agree on everything. I'm a labor lawyer. I certainly been through my share of, of labor disputes in my career, but that's not, that doesn't preclude their ability to have an opportunity to offer their perspective that is valuable and valued. One question in this realm that may have come up when you're talking to the players I wanted to ask you about in the sense of black women, black players 
haven't always felt welcome or completely understood in the NWSL. And I'm wondering what you're hoping to do as a commissioner to lead change in that area. Yeah, well, um, the backstory for me about why I'm so passionate about diversity and inclusion is because I grew up in Brooklyn in a community of color. Mm-hmm. And I went to a public high school in Brooklyn where I was the minority. And in my experience in those very formative years of my life, which was ages 14 to 18, I had many, many conversations, but also just observations about how marginalized communities, even in the context where they were the majority, in my high school, they were the majority, but still their perspective was shaped by being a marginalized or underrepresented community. And from that moment, I really leaned into the fact that, and this is how my sort of formula of my desire to work in the sports industry really came about, that sport was an opportunity to really unite people in a way that was different from almost anything else in our social fabric, perhaps music, perhaps food, you know, those were sort of the three things that I always observed and um, really just clung to the sports sphere. And um, to all the players of color in the league and particularly black players, I think there is an opportunity to really first pause, stop and listen, seek to understand what the challenges have been, and then really work collaboratively to create solutions for the culture that we expect to provide to all players where everybody, one of the sayings I always have said is if you love a game, you should feel that the game loves you back Mm. and that our sport should really be a reflection of the communities we serve. And therefore there needs to be an intentional effort to reach out to those typically under-indexed or marginalized communities and invite them to the conversation specifically. Because what we know about marginalized communities is that without that intentionality, oftentimes that feeling of being marginalized becomes perpetuated generationally. And I've worked with a lot of nonprofit organizations to learn about sort of the systemic issues that have created that, some of which many of which unfortunately still exist. And what are the tools and resources to proactively combat that? And I'm still on a journey of learning as I think most people are. Um, I would hope that most people would acknowledge that nobody is like the be be all end all in this space. Um, And we all still uh, can learn together. So I hope to have the opportunity to work with the collective and to find opportunities to support their objectives. In any of your conversations with the players, whether it was during your sort of interview process or even since you were named the next commissioner, had they brought up sort of trust issues with the league in, in connection to what we saw last season in terms of, I think there were five male head coaches either fired or forced to resign due to misconduct in the league, and you had a, a sixth team, Gotham fired its... GM for misconduct. I mean, 
your predecessor as commissioner was forced to resign for, for her lack of response to player calls for investigations. How do you plan to build that trust, rebuild that trust between the players and the, and the commissioner's office moving forward? The league is committed to creating and facilitating a safe environment for players and really all of our constituents. And it'll be my responsibility to ensure that the appropriate policies and procedures are in place from a macro perspective. But then, you know, I really feel that my background in labor relations is going to be the key to unlocking the union and the players in terms of their support, trust, and building that credibility, that that bridge, because you know, some people might think, oh, there's a CBA in place. So that must mean that, you know, you don't have to worry about the union anymore. They're, they're good. Their deal is done. This is actually the time when you build the trust. Right. Can the league, will the league show up on a daily, weekly, as needed basis to provide the platform and the forum for the union and the league to problem solve, to communicate. Sometimes the issues are small. Sometimes the issues are big. Um, Sometimes we might bring something to the table. Sometimes they might bring something to the table. I think what is lost on the fans probably and people who aren't behind the scenes in collective bargaining is that a collective bargaining agreement is a living, breathing document. it's, It's not as if you negotiate it and then you put it in in a in uh, in cement and you close it and then you open up again in five years. The parties will, all, will oftentimes discuss modifications or side letters that amend the terms of the CBA. And in fact, I would argue that that's evidence of a very healthy relationship because we should both expect that no matter how diligent or thorough everyone was in bargaining, there will be things that are identified that are either gaps or weren't covered in the agreement or unintended consequences that maybe right. weren't contemplated. And it's the strength of our relationship that's going to allow us to work on those proactively or respectfully conclude, you know what, we're going to, we're going to, we need to take this to arbitration for either political or other reasons and, you know, nothing personal we're still working together, but let's see what a third party neutral arbitrator might say in this context and you move on. So that's what I hope to achieve with the union, the kind of relationship where we can proactively problem solve, raise issues before they're a real issue, conclude jointly, you know what, we've done everything we can to try to resolve this. Let's let's go to arbitration if we need to, but have the kind of relationship where it doesn't impact our relationship moving forward. It's the 10th year of the league, which is a real milestone considering its two predecessor leagues lasted only three seasons each. Where do you see the business side of this league going sort of in the near term and maybe the long term? 10 years is a huge milestone. I I think it should be celebrated, but I think we also need to contextualize the fact that, you know, when people talk about where are we in our growth cycle, These other leagues have been around for 100 years, literally 100 years, 10 times the number of years that this league has been around. And with that as the context, I think the league's success um, has been very impressive. I think, you know, women's sports and the NWSL in particular 
clearly were uh, able to establish very clear growth metrics during COVID that have really catalyzed and expedited the growth of the business that are now being capitalized on from a revenue perspective. And that is part of what has made me really excited because it really feels like all of that, the intersection of all those factors have led to sort of this perfect positive storm that will allow this league to really grow in a much more uh, expedited way than it might otherwise have been able to achieve. This week in Austin at South by Southwest, we saw Sandra Bullock, who's an Austinite, the actress, say that she'd love to see an NWSL team come to Austin. What is the current situation on potential expansion for the league and any current interest that the league is receiving and and how soon does the league want to expand again? Uh, Well, the answer to the last question is soon. Um, Probably uh, among the top few short-term priorities for me when I walk in the door, which is to organize a process for us to figure out who, what, where, when, why, and how. Um, But I can say uh, just almost, as an outsider, um, just since the announcement last Wednesday, I have personally (laughs) been contacted by more than seven potential investor groups who are all bizarrely and insanely qualified um, (laughs) to be owners in in any major professional sports league. Like these are top quality owners. So um, I think it's going to be a h- very hard decision on our side, but a good problem to have, very good problem to have. And um, there's a lot of pent up demand uh, for expansion. And uh, I think despite the challenges of the last six months and in part due to the hard work of everyone at the league, our partners and the board to stabilize the league in the last six months, we're in a great place. This league is primed for growth and expansion is going to be one of those probably early successes that, you know, we'll be celebrating in, uh, in the coming months. Nice. That's good to hear. That's a lot of, yeah. uh, it's more than I was expecting on the number of, of interested Me parties. Too. Me too. <laughs> Me too. It's, uh, it's quite impressive. I have to say very impressive. So at the national lacrosse league, you work, you've been there two and a half years. Uh, part of that time was with, um, the now former commissioner, Nick Sakevich, who had a long history in MLS with soccer. Did he ever share anything with you about his experience in the American soccer world? Oh, a lot. Um, Nick, well, first of all, Grant, maybe you can be the one to uncover this because I've been waiting for someone to sort of observe the fact that Nick and I traded places. I I think it's hilarious. Apparently nobody else does, but I've been waiting for someone to be like, isn't it weird that Nick's working in hockey and Jessica's working in soccer? I think it's funny. Um, Nick, uh, Nick's love for soccer is like one of the most um, authentic things. If you talk to Nick, anyone who's talked to Nick would know when he talks about soccer, he just like explodes with enthusiasm (laughs) Um, he, he loves the sport. Um, he's still very involved. He talked a lot about, um, in our many, many hours, just me and him, um, 
the growth story of soccer, particularly in the US. You know, mm-hmm. he was really part of that with his involvement in MLS, both sure. at the league office and then at multiple teams. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think I sort of through that process, uh, not knowing how applicable any of it would have been, um, but listening and learning from him just because he's, uh, an impressive sports industry executive. So I absorbed a lot, um, from him about the sport and about his observations on, um, where it's going and how it can get there that I think will be very helpful to me in this role. I also wanted to ask, uh, I assume as the NWSL commissioner, you're going to take a seat on the U.S. Soccer Federation board. Uh, is that accurate? And when does that happen? And have you heard anything about what that board's like? Oh, um, I, I didn't, I don't know what the word is. I didn't realize that or I didn't know that until actually Don Garber told me that (laughs) when he reached out to me to wish me an offer of congratulations and anything he can do to help. um, He also said, and we're going to sit next to each other on this board. And I was like, oh, what's that like? And he was sort of explaining to me um, and getting me excited, frankly, about the opportunity, given how global the sport is to have that international visibility that really does have a direct impact on the league and its operations. Um, And I'm very excited about that. I had a tiny bit of exposure to that at the NHL, um, working a little bit with the IIHF and some of the European federations and certainly USA Hockey and Hockey Canada, because similarly, although not to the same degree, hockey has that sort of international um, overlap with the NHL schedule, of course, the Olympics, we won't talk about that, Um, you know, world, you know, uh, the the world cup, the uh, world juniors, you know, all of those international competitions do affect the scheduling of the league and all of those things. So I had, I had some visibility into that, but um, I, based on what I understand from Don and now others, it sounds like this will be at a whole different level. And I'm excited to learn and understand that and really see and experience how impactful this sport is on a global basis. Just wanted to wrap up with a question connected to your Twitter bio, which includes the phrase adventure traveler. Can you elaborate <laughs> on that? Um, sure. I, I am, um, when I am not, you know, commissioner or sports executive by day, uh, my, uh, I, as described unicorn space, my thing that sort of makes me feel whole that has nothing to do with my work is that I I'm, I'm sort of an adrenaline junkie. Okay. Um, I like to do things that make me feel alive. Um, and so I love to climb mountains and rock climb and mountain bike. And I've jumped out of planes and, um, do stuff like that. So when I say adventure traveler, I mean, like, you know, getting uncomfortable in, in a place where you're like heart is pounding and you're like a little bit scared, but kind of excited to like, see what your body is capable of. Would you consider for one of your first games, jumping out of a plane and landing in the stadium? (laughs) Yes, I would. In fact, (laughs) but you'll have to clear it with my children who were very upset that for my 40th birthday, I wanted to do my, I wanted to skydive and I did for my 40th birthday and they were not happy about it. So you'll have to clear it with my bosses, which are my uh, 
14 and 11 year old. <laughs> Jessica Berman will be taking over as the next commissioner of the NWSL on April 20th. Jessica, congratulations. Good luck. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Jessica Berman as well as producer Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time. Bye.